Again, as I said, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. And uh, as I, I was out last week, and I, I truly miss being here. So I'm excited to be here. But I also want to say thank you to all of you uh, that are a part of Mission for allowing me a week off to spend with my family that I don't see nearly often enough. We had a great time, great resting time, although we were more tired when we got back than when we left. But it was a great time. Thank you guys for allowing me to do that. Now this week... We're just continuing on. Uh, if you are new to Mission Church, this is what we do. We take a book of the Bible and we preach through that book line by line, verse by verse. We don't skip around a whole lot. We don't do a lot of topical things. We just preach God's Word. We don't skip the parts we don't like. We don't skip the parts that are difficult to preach. Uh, usually they just get assigned to the associate pastor. That's me. But this morning, <laughs> this morning is another one of those times there's a little controversy surrounding a part of this scripture, but Man, do we have a lot to get to before we get to that point. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try as best I can to cover everything that is in it. There is so much to cover in these 10, 11 verses that I, I really want to try to try to get to it all. Um, I want to reiterate that Pastor Eric and myself are always available for if you have questions or anything that is said here today, or if I'm not able to flesh something out far enough and you want to continue the conversation, that is what we are here for. We would much we would love to, to talk to you, to answer questions, whatever you may need. But let's get started. So it says, then a demon-oppressed man. All right, let's stop right there. Don't freak out. I know we got a long way to go when you think, oh, he's doing five words at the very beginning. Don't, just hold on. All right, I want to throw a few numbers at you first, okay? 7.7 billion, 3.3 billion, okay? Just wrap your mind around how many that is. I don't even know how to give you an analogy. It's a lot, okay? That is how many dollars the Harry Potter series, the 7.7, and the Twilight series, 3.3 billion, made in the box office. That's not counting all the merchandise. I've seen 38 Halloween costumes of Harry Potter already, and it's not even Halloween yet. So that's not counting all the other stuff. That's just ticket prices to get into the movie to see them, okay? 17 million people. That is how many people watched the premiere episode of The Walking Dead last week, last Sunday. I don't know how many will watch tonight. It may be much less, maybe much more, I don't know. The only other time that 17 million people watched a non-sports broadcast on a cable, cable station was season five of The Walking Dead. So the only time this has ever happened is the same show. What we see here is a trend. People are obsessed, increasingly so, with the supernatural, with things they cannot explain. They want to see it, they want to read about it, they want to read the books first, then watch the movies and watch the TV show. They are obsessed with it. And these series just attest to that. How much money they made and how many people watched it show that people are obsessed with these things. And yet, this same culture that is obsessed with the supernatural simultaneously views people like us who view that there are, a, there are real demons and a real Satan in the world as kooks or as morons or as laughingstocks. If you believe that any of that is real, then you, then you clearly have lost your mind. That is what the culture views, even though they are also simultaneously obsessed with it. You see, there are two types of people. There are people that watch the show for entertainment, they say, it's so far-fetched, I just like watching it, it's entertaining. And then there are the people that have 
built bunkers out in the backyard and they're ready for the zombie apocalypse and their vampire husband Edward or Jacob the werewolf or did I have those right? Whichever way, whichever way they are are going to go live in that, okay? So there's two extremes here. But here's the thing, most people view the people like us who see Satan as real as the second one. We are that insane. Like, we, they think that someone building a bunker in their backyard for the zombie apocalypse is crazy, but you're crazy too for thinking that demons actually do exist and affect people. Problem with that is that this is not the way Jesus viewed demons and Satan. He took them very seriously. He knew who they were. He met the devil face to face in the desert, as you see in Matthew 4. He cast out demon after demon after demon during his ministry. There are probably not even all the instances recorded. So numerous, numerous times he takes them very seriously and tells people to take them very seriously. Now before I move on, I just want to clarify something really quick. Um, I asked around to a lot of people, some people were in this room, that I asked this question to. I did research, I looked into it. I wholeheartedly believe what I'm getting ready to say. If you are a Christian in this room, you are truly a believer in Christ, you cannot be possessed by a demon. So don't lay awake tonight in the darkness of your room going, man, I hope a demon doesn't get me. Okay? They can't infiltrate your spirit. Ephesians 5.18, we don't have time to read these, so if you want to write them down, that's fine. Look at them later. But Ephesians 5.18, Acts 13.52, Romans 8.9, among others, are verses that specifically say when you come to believe in Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are full with the Holy Spirit. If you are full of something, there is no room for something else. Some of you have probably seen it floating around here. Take this balloon, for instance. It is full of air, right? Can't put more air in this. I tied it really tight, okay? It's full of air. If I want to take this balloon, does it float? No. Good catch. Uh, if, if I want to take this balloon and make it a helium balloon, I cannot do that, right? From the inside of this balloon, because it is full of air, I cannot change what this balloon is, what it does, or any of those things, right? Does that make sense? Okay. What just happened? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're done. That's the only thing you are going to remember from today anyway. All right. What about from the outside? I drastically affected this balloon, right? From the outside. Okay, so this is something we must see here. We must be on guard, even when you're sitting in your church pew. Okay, you must be on guard. You never know what's going to happen here at Mission Church. So from the outside, demons can affect you. They can oppress you. They can persecute you. They can lie to you. They can try to steer you astray. You see, in 1 Peter 5, 8, we see instruction be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This does not sound like advice to watch out for some fictional character that might come out of your TV and get you at night. Okay? This is a real thing. This is a real person working against you. Ephesians 6, 10-12. Many of you have heard this scripture. It's the full armor of God, but it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
This tells us here we are in constant battle. We have to be on guard. We have to be constantly fighting against the devil, fighting against his demons, and fighting against sin, which is the, the weapon he uses to try to get us to go astray. See, God does not tell us later in those verses to put on our belt of truth, our breastplate of righteousness, our shield of faith, our helmet of salvation, and to take up our sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, just so we can sit on the sidelines and hope God doesn't call me into the fray or put me into the game. This is not why he tells us to get our armor just in case. Christian, in this room, you are in the fray. The world is the fray. The world is the battle. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to be in the battle or not, you are in it. And you must be on guard. You must be sober-minded and be watchful because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. Now, we may not be able to be possessed. I still wholeheartedly believe that. After everything I've just said, we cannot have a demon infiltrate our spirit if we are a believer in Christ because we are already full of something else, namely the Holy Spirit. Okay, But that does not mean we cannot be spiritually oppressed by them. It is these principalities that lead us astray. They convince us of the lies of this world. They convince us that the lesser joys now are better than the greater joys later. So why not get them now? Just get them now. Worry about later, later. Right? I do this every night when I stay up too late. I'm like, ah, morning time is morning Justin's problem. Like, that's a different person. I, I'll, he'll deal with that, okay? If he's tired tomorrow, whatever. Okay? It's instant gratification. These, these demons will tell you those choices don't have repercussions. Or even if they do, they won't be that bad. They, they convince you of these things. Is this still a balloon? Still a balloon, right? The, the identity of this has not changed. It has simply been rendered completely useless and completely ineffective. You can't do anything with this but throw it in the trash. This is what we must guard against. We must guard against serving no purpose for the kingdom because we have given in to our sinful desires because demons or Satan or this world or whatever you may want to say has come against us and convinced us to live that way instead of for the kingdom. You see, we know almost nothing about this man that came to Jesus other than he had been rendered blind and mute. That's all we really know. But I can almost assure you without reading the rest of the story that it didn't happen overnight. It was probably a sinful lifestyle that led him. He made justification for this action and small justification for this action and then sin beget sin beget sin until he was so overtaken by it that he was more than an open door for a demon to walk through and to possess him. And then it completely overtook his lifestyle, and it changed him forever if he had not met Jesus. And this is how it can happen for us as well. See, we, we may begin by simply putting down our armor. We don't do anything, we're just not going to fight as hard anymore. So we, we put down our shield or our sword or our helmets, any of those things. We don't join the enemy we don't switch sides of the battle, but we just take small steps closer to the enemy and small steps closer until one day you find out you're not fighting anymore and you've completely changed sides of the battle. You see, we make these concessions for so long that we get to a point where our lives are completely unrecognizable. And we wonder, man, how did I get here? This is not where I wanted to end up. I don't, this is not my goal for my life. How did I end up here? What happened? And... We don't 
if we are true believers in Christ, we don't lose our salvation. That's not what I'm saying to you. That's not what I mean by switching sides of the battle. So you may be in a prodigal season right now and wonder, how did I get here? But there are still consequences that these demons would love to shove into your face. You may, you may lose your job. You may lose your marriage. You may lose your kids. You may be, end up in jail. You may be addicted. You may be broke. There are consequences to these actions. And then you look back and you can't even see a specific time where it all went wrong, like the instantaneous popping of a balloon. But you just look back and you go, where, where did this go wrong? I, I, I don't remember a specific just turn to where everything went wrong, and yet here we are, laying on the ground, useless, broken, desperate, ineffective for anything for the kingdom. I heard a saying this week, do not know who, know who said it, so if you're listening to this online later this week and you said it, just take credit, whoever that may be. It says, there are no sharp turns on the road to hell. And this is a truth we must see here. The death, devil is constantly trying to get you off course, but he usually, we went over this a few weeks, maybe months ago, he usually doesn't go, okay, you're over here now, just steers you just just off to the right or just off to the left from where you're supposed to be going and then you end up somewhere how did I get here how did my life end up here but the larger and more important point here the reason any of what I just said for the last however many minutes matters at all is that Jesus is the answer this is a extremely short miracle story read it again real quick Time me if you have to. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. That's it. Now, there's more to the story, but it doesn't involve that guy. That's how quick Jesus answered the prayer. But the, the same answer to this man's blindness and muteness is the very same answer to ours. The very same answer to our apathy. He is the answer to our justifications. He is the answer to our sin. He is the answer to the slow fade you may be on right now. It, he is the answer to our demon oppression. He is the answer to our lack of joy, to our addictions, to porn, to love of money, to love of power, to depression, to sex, alcohol, drugs, you name it. Your obsession with blank. Jesus is the answer to that. Someone knew that. Someone brought this man to Jesus because they knew Jesus is the answer. Jesus can heal this man. Jesus is the only one who can heal this man. He is the answer to everything. He is the only answer to, the, to everything. He is the only one that offers hope. He is the only one that offers healing. He is the only one that offers care. And he's definitely the only one that offers salvation. Jesus is the answer. I was going to preach that as the whole sermon, but I was assigned more verses, so we're going to move forward but keep that in mind as we continue to move jesus is the answer to all of these things okay first five words check let's move on so jesus heals this guy and then verse 23 and 24 we see the rest of, or part of the story and all of the people were amazed and said can this be the son of david but when the pharisees heard it they said it is only by beelzebul the prince of demons that this man casts out demons let me ask you guys a question. Anybody here ever seen pastors on TV healing people or casting out demons? On TV? Okay. What do you think? You're allowed to talk in mission. Anybody think that's real? 
Didn't think so. Most of us go, nah, nope, fake. Did anyone say that about Jesus here? Even the people that were coming against him didn't say that. They did not deny that Jesus had true power, and consequently, that means they did not deny that demons are a real thing. Okay? They didn't say, oh, well, he's casting out fake demons. That guy was just, just messing around. They don't say that either. So even the people coming against Jesus, they affirm two things by saying this. One, Jesus has real power. He did something real. And two, those demons are also real. We're not accusing him of being fake. We are simply accusing his power of coming somewhere else. You see, the, the difference was the source of his power. That's where the dispute was. Some said rightly that this must be the son of David. In other words, in case we don't know exactly what that means, the Messiah, the promised one. That, that is another name for, hey, we've been waiting for this dude. Could it be him? Is this him? It might be. And then the Pharisees step in and have a different take. You see, quickly here, We've talked about the Pharisees so much in Matthew. They get a bad rap, rightfully so. But they're being shown up here. It's, it's not in the story. So take a step back. This is just based on some research this week. and thing. It's almost impossible that this man wasn't taken to someone associated with the Pharisees at some point to try to get healing. Maybe not. Again, it's not in the story. But... 99% sure he was taken to someone associated with the religious people. Hey, man, or men, I, I got something going on here. Or the, I, I guess he couldn't talk. So someone, hey, this guy, this guy needs your help. Clearly, they hadn't helped him because as the story picks up, he is still blind. He is still mute. See, this is what the Pharisees claimed they could do was cast out demons and do all these miracles and all of these things. We're God's people. We're God's chosen elite. We're the religious elite. We can do all of these things. So... Almost assuredly, this man had been brought to them, and nothing had changed for him. And then Jesus comes along, and he does what the Pharisees couldn't do. So they attempt to discredit him and to say, oh, no, 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 no. It may be real. He may have really done that, but he did it by the power of Satan. Now, there is a small object lesson for us embedded here in the text. Good intentions do not always equal good outcomes. Good efforts, good plans do not always have good outcomes. I hate to burst your balloon. Hey, I hate to burst your bubble here. Karma is not a real thing. It does not exist. Good things don't always happen to good people. Bad things don't always happen to bad people. This world would make so much more sense if that were true. It's not. But we do know this. No one in this room would say, oh, I totally, karma is my, my jam. That's what I do. Okay, I, I believe totally in karma. Nobody would say that. But deep down, if we really, like, Jack Nicholson, deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, like, is that, is that not kind of how we believe sometimes? We help an old lady cross the street. I don't know, is that a thing anymore? It's probably a really old reference. But we pay for a person's coffee behind us at Starbucks. There's, a, there's one. We babysit a friend's children who are the spawn of Satan. Like, I didn't believe in Satan, but now I do because I watch your kids. Okay? We do that for free. We tip a waitress more than we should, even after bad service. We, here's a good one, we round up to the next dollar for the sad kid faces at McDonald's. Would you like to round up 12 cents? That, yeah, whatever. Right? But we think we've really done something, right? Let us get a flat tire in the parking lot on the way out of buying someone else's coffee at Starbucks and ask, see if we don't say, I don't deserve this. In your head, maybe. Maybe not out loud. Or if you have ever uttered the words, 
this is the thanks I get, you somehow believe in karma. You somehow believe because of this thing I've done, I deserve something different. Let one of those spawn of Satan kids break your brand new TV when they're at your house. Throw a football through it or something. See, if you don't say, man, I was doing a good thing, and this, this is what happens, this is what goes on. And here, in this story, Jesus has trumped your 37-cent sad-faced kids donation by a lot. Okay? I don't care if you're the staunchest of staunch atheists in this moment. You can look at what Jesus just did and go, that was a good thing for that guy. Think about it really quickly. A dude who could not see or speak was now able to do both. Regardless of the spiritual implications of what that means or what that means, who Jesus is, or any of those things, a dude can now talk and see that five minutes ago couldn't talk and see, and they go, nope, you're the devil. You, sir, are Satan. Good intentions, good plans, good things do not always equal good things. Do we get that? So how does that apply to us at all? Living for the gospel does not always benefit you in this life. Many times it won't benefit you in this life. Many times, if not every time, it will not make your life easier in this life. The Bible seems to be pretty clear about that. Live for the gospel, it's going to be tough. There's going to be some good times, of course, but it's going to be tough. We must remember to live for the eternal reward and not the praises or prizes of men. We must look at this world and truly Truly count the sufferings of it not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us when Jesus takes us home. Jesus did this all the way to a cross that he did not deserve. Never mind they made fun of him and called him the devil here. They killed him later in the story we'll get to when we get to the end of Matthew. He calls us to do that. He calls us to live in the face of those things and to Look forward to our reward. But how do we do that? Look to Jesus. He is the answer. He's the answer when the world is coming against you. He is the answer when something way worse than your TV breaks. He's the answer when things don't make sense. And you're, you're sitting in your, your floor crying at night going, How? How, how is this the case? Surely I'm, I'm dreaming. Surely this didn't actually happen, Jesus is the answer to that. And then we see something very interesting and terrifying in verse 25. It says, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I wish that wasn't in there, because now I'm aware he knows my thoughts as well. Okay, think about that the next time you're in an argument with your husband or wife, not that any Christians would ever argue with their husband or wife. But the thing you didn't say, but you were about to say, but then thought a little better of it, guess what? Jesus knows both, what you said and what you almost said. Or, not that I would ever do this, but when you walk around the corner and you say what you were going to say out there, and if I had said this, I'd have won that argument, but I'm a, I'm a better man than that. Eh, are you? Again, not that I would ever do that. Jesus knows what you said around the corner, or thought around the corner, or any thought you may have about anything, just in case you're not married in the room today. Any thought that you have, Jesus knows it. That's why the Sermon on the Mount was so adamant that it's not just about our actions that we outwardly do, but it's the heart and the motive behind it. So even when you do good things, it's the heart and motive behind it that is important. 
But Jesus knows both, outward, inward. That's the bad news, especially for me. The good news is the beauty of this is that he knows these things and he is still willing to die for us. He is still willing to pardon us. He knows we are going to think terrible things literally every day, if not multiple times a day, and yet he still offers us pardon. He is still able to cover and forgive those sins, whether they are seen, whether they are unseen. Jesus is the answer for both. He's the answer for the things you do that you shouldn't do. He's the answer for the things that you should do and don't do. He is the thing, answer for the things that no one even knows you're thinking. And I'm so glad that that's true. He is the answer for all of those things because he knew ahead of time they were going to happen and yet he was still willing to go to that cross undeservedly and die in our place. But knowing their thoughts, he makes a very logical argument after that towards them. I'm going to paraphrase this. Again, there's so much to cover. I'm just having to shorten some things. So I'm going to paraphrase this because I think the larger and more important point is, comes after that. But basically he says, now what sense would that make, guys? Come on. Like why would the devil send demons into the world to possess people and then send a human being in the world to cast them out? Like that, really? Is that, is that what we're going with here? Like, that's what I feel like Jesus is saying to them. He, that would be like scoring a basket in your own goal a bunch of times because I've cast out a bunch of these guys. Okay, So why would he do that? That would be, the, the devil in nowhere in Scripture is made to seem like he's stupid. So why would he do that? The answer is he wouldn't, but anyway. He would be fighting against his own cause, and that's what Jesus is bringing up here. He's saying that wouldn't make any sense, but even further than that, your sons, meaning your followers, Pharisees, your underlings, whoever they are, they claim to cast out demons. Now, I don't think they actually were casting out any demons. I think they were more attuned to, the, or more akin to the TV pastors. But they claim to. Who are they doing it by? Are they not working for the devil because they claim to cast out demons? And if I have come, and I am actually casting out demons, one that you couldn't do yourselves, then you know that the kingdom of God is here. That you know that the kingdom of God is at hand, and you are now seeing a glimpse of that kingdom by me casting out and making better this man. You are seeing what I am going to do in the long run of making all things new, making all things redeemed, making all things better, making all things perfect. You are seeing a glimpse of that right now, and you are denying it. And then he says something really strange, and he goes into a kind of a longer warning to these Pharisees. But he makes a really strange analogy. Let's read verse 29. And it says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So he's talking about healing this man. He's talking about the kingdom of God is here. And then he jumps into this analogy. If I had been there, I'd have been like, Wait, what? Wait a minute. How did we get here? What are you talking about? The, the analogy is even stranger. Who's the thief here? You can talk if you want to. Jesus is the thief. The strong man is the devil. Very rare in Scripture do you have an analogy where the thief is Jesus and the strong man is the devil. But that is exactly what we have here. You say Jesus is saying the same things that we can read in Ephesians, where Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is referred to as the god of this world. Satan has power. Okay? There is no denying that. You make, scripture makes it very clear that outside of faith in Christ, we are his. The devils. 
We are following Him. We want to be like Him. We want to be like the Father of lies. That's what, that's what He is called. And we want to be like Him. Outside of Jesus, that's who we are. We are owned by the devil because He is the God of this world. Now, again, He's got power, but He's got power on a leash. God is only allowing Him to have the amount of power that He has. We see that in Job we, all over Scripture, okay? But He does, in fact, have power. But Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming to buy us back. Jesus is coming to steal us back. Whether the devil wants us to or not, he's taking us. He's taking his people. The devil may own us, but in order to take us back, Jesus is saying, starting right now, I'm rounding up my people. Whether you like it or not, devil, I am taking back my people. Satan, you are strong, but I am stronger. You may have power, but I've got more. And there is nothing you can do about it. Jesus is the answer. This is the beauty of the gospel. We are powerless by ourselves against our owner. Just like regular people that are owned. They don't have power or they would just, if they had the power to leave, they would just leave. We do not have that power on our own. We are slaves to sin. We are slaves to our master, the devil. We are following the passions of our flesh like everyone else. And then Jesus steps in and redeems us. He buys us back. He, we are twice owned by Jesus. He created us. We're owned. We gave ourselves away and sold ourselves into slavery. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm going to buy you back. That is what the word redeem means. He is coming to get us. But Let's not get our, our, our personal nouns mixed up. He does that, not us. He is the one with the skills to do that. He is the one that binds the strong man when we are powerless to do so. He is that answer. We have no part of it. We don't work out the equation to get the answer. He just is the answer. The problem with that is that so many people in today's culture don't like that view. They don't want to be a part of a story where they have nothing to do with the outcome. They don't want to be the powerless one that has to be saved or rescued. Do you know that I, some, maybe this is old news, I don't know, Disney has announced they're not making any more princess movies, like fairy tale movies. And now looking back over the last few years, I can kind of see the trend, like that's, that's not the kind of movies they're making. And they, so they've been making these since 1937 when Snow White came out. Shameless plug, go on Facebook, look at my daughter in her Snow White costume. It's the cutest thing you've ever seen. So <laughs> Disney has been making these movies since for 79 years. And not only making them, making a killing. Okay, Disney ain't Disney because they made a few dollars on a few of these movies. They are making a killing off of these things. But they announced they're not making anymore, at least for right now. Why? They do not, this is them, they do not like the image of a helpless princess having to be saved by the knight in shining armor. Now some of this is feminism, I'm not going into that right now. But it's also just a mirror of our culture, our do-it-yourself, make-yourself, you can be anything you want to be if you put your mind to it, culture. How dare they say someone is helpless and someone else, like let them break out themselves, or at least let them help. We, we don't, in our culture, we don't like to hear that we are utterly helpless and someone else has to come in and save us. We at the very least want a part of it. At least some of the credit, some of the glory. But that is not the gospel. It's just not. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the gospel, the good news, the best 
news is that in order to plunder a strong man who has all the power, someone has to bind him. The better news than even that is that I am that guy. I am the one who is going to bind the strong man for you. Because you can't. Jesus is going to bind the strong man. I will render him helpless. I will render him hopeless. I will crush the serpent's head. I will save those who I came to save. And there is nothing that anyone, including ourselves, can do about it. And then he gives them an ultimatum we have heard before. Again, I'm shortening here. I could preach this whole verse. But verse 30, it says, you are either with me or against me. That's it. There is no neutral ground here. There is no riding the fence and hope to fall off on the right side. There is no, ah, I'll wait and see. No decision is a decision, and that decision is I'm not with Jesus. That's it. With him, against him. Those are your two categories. Again, we've preached that before here, so I'm not skipping it. it again, just time. But then, hold in. Verse 31, this is some of the best news that I could ever preach to you. Verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. After all this harsh language to the Pharisees, he tells them, make your choice. It's me or not me. And that's it. Those are your two choices. Make your choice. You with the binder, not the trapper keeper binder, the one who binds or the bound. Make your choice. Those are your only options here. But then he tells them. He warns them. And then he gives them this ultimatum. Every sin and every blasphemy, I can forgive. I can do it. You repent and turn to me, I will gladly forgive every sin and every blasphemy. He tells them, there is still time. You are still breathing. You can turn from your sin and turn to me. This is literally the best news I can offer you. I can't soup that up any better. Every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven you. I wish I could just end right there. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is great news to everyone. That is really great news to me because I know how many times I've sinned. I'm not even talking about how bad they were. Just the sheer number would have probably appalled most of you. And I'm not even talking about before I was a Christian. I'm talking about yesterday. It would probably appall everyone in this room, and yet Jesus says, confess your sins, believe in me, repent. Every sin, every blasphemy. My grace is large enough. My grace is big enough. No sin can be out of reach. No sin can be too big. No sin can be too numerous. No sin can be anything too anything. Because my grace is still bigger. I am the strong man, or the strongest man. Now, I wish I could stop right there, because that would just be a great mic drop. Every sin, every blasphemy, repent, all that. But he does go on to say, in verse 31 and 32, some other things, okay? We'll get to this. It says, But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And I know you're thinking, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You just told me every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven, and that was really good news. Now you're telling me some not-so-good news. So, let's take a closer look. This is, if you've grown up in church at all, you've heard the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. That's what this is. This is where they get it. This is what they reference when they say it exists. All of those things. It has been preached by some that you can commit this sin almost unknowingly. And whoopsie-daisies, 
I thought I was living for Jesus my whole life, but when I get to heaven, God's like, nope, you got that one thing on your record, and I can't forgive that one, so that's not what it is saying here. Please do not leave here thinking that in any way that that is what it is saying. Okay, let's first try to define it as best we can quickly. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of the Spirit to Satan or refusing to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is worthy of worship and praise for His work. I'm going to say that one more time. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of the Spirit to Satan. So just like these guys saw Jesus had real power, they didn't deny that He had power. They said, yeah, He's got power, but it's Satan's power. So there's one. Or acknowledging that the Holy, not acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is worth the praise. for. So again, recognizing, yeah, He's doing that. I know it's Him. Don't care. Not going to worship Him for it. It's not ignorance of it. It's not it's not even denying that the power exists. Those can be forgiven. Acts 3.19 says to repent and turn back to that so that your sins may be blotted out. All over scripture I could have referenced anything, repent and your sins are forgiven. That's just the one I picked. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here we see the process of salvation cleared up. You see, a person can repent and be included in the most beautiful statement, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. You repent, you're in that category. But we can only accept those things that lead to repentance by the Spirit of God revealing it to us. It is only by the Spirit's power that you are going to even notice that you need to repent or you need to be forgiven for every sin and every blasphemy. So to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to willfully reject the very avenue, the very agent of repentance. Repentance leads to what? The forgiveness of sins. So the very avenue that God has provided to bring you to repentance, which brings you to the forgiveness of sins, you are saying, nah, I don't want it. It is only the Spirit who can draw men and women to repent. So willfully, willfully persistently, and finally, meaning as you die, Finally, rejecting him is to ultimately reject Jesus as well because the Spirit is who brings us to Jesus for forgiveness. There's a clear distinction here, though. This is someone who is doing so even though they recognize that the power exists. This is not ignorance. Ignorance can be repented of and be forgiven. We see this, Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So clearly, he wouldn't be saying that if it wasn't possible for them to be forgiven. They're ignorant of what they are doing. Jesus prays to God, hey, reveal to them what they are doing. And then when it is revealed to them, save them. Forgive them for what they are doing to me right now. A person who is blaspheming the Holy Spirit is someone who does know what is going on. They do know what they are doing. The truth has been made clear to them, and they thumb their nose at it. They tell God, I don't, I don't want your salvation. I don't want your mercy. I know that you are the holder 
of it. I know that you are the answer to it. I know you are the answer to my sin. I know you are the only way to be forgiven. The Spirit has shown me the truth, and I do not want it. Keep it to yourself. Throw me a life vest. I don't want that either. Throw, any, any way you've heard Jesus is helping you to be saved, which hopefully we just cleared that up a couple minutes ago, you're still, you are willfully and persistently saying, I do not want that. I know what it is. You have revealed to me what it is. I don't want it. So if you're sitting here and wondering, oh man, I hope I haven't committed that one. I'm going to get to the pearly gates. And if God asks me why I should be let in, I hope I don't have that one on my record. You don't, okay? If you're wondering that or worried about that at all, you don't have it. And I'm not saying I'm pretty sure you don't have it. You do not. You, you have not committed it. First of all, you're still living. You haven't died yet, so you have room to repent in every sin and every blasphemy. Secondly, the people that are doing this know they're doing it. They're willfully doing it. They're not going, man, I hope I haven't. They don't care. They, they are refusing it actively. So don't worry that you're going to get there one day and not be forgiven. But you cannot be saved if you permanently and pridefully reject the very Spirit that brings about repentance. Jesus just said you are either for me or against me. These are the two categories you can be in. Permanent and final refutation leads to permanent and final condemnation. If you refuse this all of your days, God is finally going to go, fine. You want it, you got it. He's not sending you to hell. He's not sending people there. He is giving them what they have actively asked him to give them. There's a huge distinction that this world does not like it when we make. David Platt asked in a sermon that I looked at this week, says, will your heart be hardened or humbled by this king? Meaning that all will recognize that Jesus is king. They will all recognize his power. They will all recognize what's going on. But will you be humbled and submit to him because of who he is? Or will you, like Disney, say, I don't want rescue if I ain't got nothing to do with it? I don't want that kind of rescue. I want to play a part. And God's saying, you can't. You can't play a part. I will do this for you. And people are all over the world are saying, well, then I don't want it. But the beauty, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of verse 31 is that if you will believe that Jesus is the stronger, strong man who has bound Satan, who has paid the full penalty for your sin, if you will submit your life to him, and guess what? you still got time to do it because you're sitting here. You haven't finally refuted the Holy Spirit because you are still alive and breathing. So if you will submit your life to serving him, then every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven you. Because, not because you've done that, because Jesus is the answer. He is the answer to your sins. He is your answer to your forgiveness. He is the answer to your salvation. He is the only way. And this is what we are pleading with you today at Mission Church. This is what we are going to die pleading with you is submit today before it is too late. Submit to the Spirit's revelation that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the way of salvation, that nothing you can do can earn this salvation, but submit to the one who has done it for you, who has bound Satan, who has plundered his goods, who has stolen you back, who has redeemed you and made you perfect in his sight and made you righteous. He is the answer. 
He is the only way. Jesus is the only one who can save. Turn to Him. Let's pray.